232. Nothing personal number of the day. Went with a number because if you weren't paying attention, NFL free agency started. NFL free agency is pretty cool. So it's not like baseball, where in baseball free agency, free agency happens. There's maybe a nope, not no news today. Oh, a bullpen guy signed. A bullpen guy signed. Yeah, nothing after that. Oh, we're waiting. We're waiting. It's spring training time. Oh, it's almost spring training. We got a few guys. Oh, the all unsigned team. It sort of goes to a crawl. NBA does it well when free agency starts, except it's all not all that exciting because the players have already given indications where they're going. Once in a while, there's a decision like a LeBron or a question as to what will happen to Kawhi. And then he goes to the Clippers. But pretty much the NBA players are happy to forecast what they're doing. NFL free agency starts and it is absolute balls to the wall. It is action packed. NFL just gets it right. God, it's so jealous of the NFL all the time. But what I noticed yesterday is that the New England Patriots spent $232 million day one. The New England Patriots, who in the previous 10 years had spent about $360 million, in one day they spent 232. Now, that included some players they brought back, so it was over 200 in free agency. Let's not even get me started on what's guaranteed. They got a couple two-year deals. They did a couple four-year deals, four for 50 with 30 guaranteed, two for 26 with 13 guaranteed. You need an abacus. You need two big monitors on your desk, and you need very nimble fingers and minus 1.5 reading glasses. And if you go through the gauntlet of signings and do the math, you'll come up with your own number. So don't at me at David P. Sampson. Don't tell me to make a correction. That's not the point of the nothing personal number of the day. Last year, the New England Patriots had a problem. They thought that they were going to be okay. Tom Brady became a buccaneer, an ugly divorce from the Patriots. Robert Kraft was going through some personal oil and lotion stuff. Belichick was thinking, I can do this without Tom. Of course, there was no one else on the team. And of course, the season went on and the Patriots were terrible. Bill Belichick gave some great quotes that we covered on Nothing Personal. What can we do? We have no money. We had a heck of a run, though. And we knew during the run that we were spending the money and one day the run would end. Well, I guess the one year of not spending money and not making the playoffs and not performing, they decided to change courses. They were number one in cap room, so they're taking advantage of that. They were middle of the pack and dead cap last year. They have no dead cap money this year, like $3 million or something. Dead cap money is when you pay for players not to play. Marlins fans know about this. When you pay for players not to play for you, that's what dead cap money is. So the Patriots went out and signed some receivers. They signed some guys on offense, defense. I'm not giving you names. I'm not giving you terms. I want to understand the psychology here. Did Robert Kraft sit down with Bill Belichick and say, listen, it turns out we needed Brady after all. Now, I know Cam Newton is no Tom Brady, but I think if we give him some weapons, we have a chance to be better. 
Let's re-sign Cam, bring him back, tell him it's his team. Surround him with some players and see what happens. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are defending Super Bowl champions who are running it back. They signed Gronkowski to come back. Brady signed that extension. So the Patriots are falling for something they never fell for before. The reason why the Patriots have been so good for so long after being so bad for so long. Do you remember the Steve Grogan Patriots when their logo was a Patriot on uh, on in the in the ready position? What's that called, Coco? When you're in the four point position, when you've got your four fingers on the turf and you're getting ready for the snap of the ball. That was the helmet they wore and the fans were masks like they did with New Orleans Aints. They'd wear masks. The Patriots were so bad. They'd win two games, three games. All of a sudden, they went on this unprecedented run when Brady took over for Bledsoe. And now one year down, and they decide to change the way they operate. The Patriots had found a way to operate smartly, to not bow to the fans' desires, to not chase, but to let the talent come to them. We used to be good at that with the Marlins, spent a lot of years building up homegrown talent, letting that talent play, supplementing it with some signings. And then we just got away from that and ended up doing a spending spree like the Patriots are doing, like the Padres tried four years ago, like the Padres tried again this year. Spending sprees tend to be directly correlated to lack of performance on the field. It is so hard when you've got cap space not to spend it immediately. You feel like you're going to get left out. You get this FOMO. It's like walking into free agency and saying to Jose Reyes, we want you no matter what, please, please. You want an extra year? Good. But in baseball, it's guaranteed you end up getting screwed. In football, you can get out of it. But yet the Patriots are behaving in a way that good teams don't. Coca's favorite team is the Ravens. They don't behave that way. All they do is win. They know it's okay when some players walk. Supplement it with good drafting. What plan are the Patriots doing? They used to be the Rays, didn't they? I guess they had a higher salary, but I guess maybe they were closer to the Dodgers than the Rays. Let's think this through. The Rays are the best run baseball organization have been for over a decade. They let players go a year too early instead of a year too late. Supplemented with some short-term veteran deals, veteran leadership in the clubhouse, some anchors in the rotation, cycle people in and out of the bullpen, cycle position players in and out, never put themselves in a position where they are worried about overpaying too many players or too many players who have contracts that are, by definition, outperform them. They don't have any rings, but in baseball, they are still considered the best, to me at least, and to other people within baseball. If you ask 30 GMs who is the best run organization, you'll get 29 Rays and one other because you can't vote for yourself. So the Patriots, we're going to find out very quickly whether their new theory of let's take all our cap space, spend it all in the first hour, make our fan base believe we're doing something, make our owner feel like we're doing something, make Belichick feel he's got better players to surround Cam Newton with, make maybe get better defense, maybe make the Patriots feel like they can compete in the NL East where you've got NL East. That's not the division in the in the AFC East. See if they can win it again. I just think it doesn't work. The Patriots, when you go away from what you are good at and you change course as a knee-jerk reaction to a down year 
or the end of a run where you try to keep the closed window from staying closed for as long as it needs to, and you try to open that window unnaturally too quickly, you end up screwing yourself and your fans terribly. Trust me, I'm the king screwer. I know these things. I think the Patriots are going to learn to regret this. I really do. Anyway, we'll see what happens. So we got this thing we have to do with CBS. And I got to tell you about it again. It's this brackets thing. You go to cbssports.com backslash capital NPDSB rackets. It's not a racket. It's a bracket. But if you just click NPDS brackets, capital N through B, with cbssports.com, you have to join the app, fill in. CBS announced to us today, hey, get to your listeners Get to your viewers because we're offering now a $100 gift card to Paramount Plus, courtesy of CBS Sports. What the hell is that? I don't even know what that means. A $100 gift card to Paramount Plus. That means you get Paramount Plus, you pay for it, but then they give you a gift card that you can give to your app company, to your Android or Apple phone, or you put it in your checking account but then you don't have to use it for Paramount Plus. Can it only be used for Paramount Plus? Why not just say a year free of Paramount Plus? What would be wrong with that? What's the Coca, eight bucks a month? I signed up for it already. Used to be CBS All Access. Eight bucks a month is 96 bucks a year. Why not just offer fans who win the bracket a $100 gift card? No, I'm just kidding. Offer them a year free of Paramount Plus, but that's not in my read, I can't say it. So here's what I want you to do. Compete with me and Coke in the MPDS bracket. We need like 500 people to do this because I want as many people in the drawing at the end of the tournament because everyone who beats Coca gets into a pot, a pot, not the pot, a pot, and a name will be pulled from that pot and a prize will be given that may be better than a $100 gift card to Paramount Plus. And if you win, if you win the entire bracket, you're going to get something cool from me and Coca too. Can you imagine how great it would be to get a signed photo of Matthew Coca with his headset on, with his four screens in front of him, MFing all people, mostly me during the course of a show? Right now, we have about 100 people in. Let's double that and triple that because who doesn't want dear John, best wishes, fondly, Matthew Coca. Now, if that's not incentive enough, then add the gift card to it. If that's not incentive enough, I got some other stuff that I may give. CBSSports.com, fill it out. It starts soon. You can actually, once you fill it out in addition to MPDS and all the cool stuff we're going to do, and the great gift card, you could win a Nissan Rogue. That's sort of cool. And you could go to the 2022 Final Four in New Orleans. That's kind of cool. Maybe. All right. So there's a team... The NCAA tournament starts on Friday, but apparently there's 17 playing games. And when you're filling in your bracket, there's like 42 games where you have to pick a winner and then they go into the main bracket or you can do it like I do it. When I go to my dartboard, that's how I fill out. I don't do the picks of the day that way, but I do do the brackets that way as long as the dart always points to Wisconsin. I don't know how I'm going to choose Wisconsin to lose to anybody. I already gave you a way to see that two of the number one seeds will not even make it to the final four. That was the way to see yesterday. But there's a team 
whose name you are not going to put down. And it's the team that used to be coached by Bobby Knight. It's a team that Isaiah Thomas used to play for. Indiana, the Hoosers. No, not Gene Hackman either. They fired their coach yesterday. His coach was Archie Bunker. And um, oh my God, oh my God. Their coach was Archie Miller. I must tell you what's in my head right now because my brain's a funny thing. I've been up for a lot of hours today and I was reading about Norman Lear. Norman Lear, who is 99 years old. And one of the shows he worked on was All in the Family. All in the Family is a show from the 70s. And Carol O'Connor, who you may know from a, uh, he was in a police drama after All in the Family, which escapes me right now. I can't believe, I can't remember, not Law and Order, not that stuff, it was before that. Anyway, he played Archie Bunker. So I knew that we were doing a segment on Archie Miller and Archie Bunker came out. God, the brain's an amazing thing. Hello, synapses, hello. All right, I'm back. Archie Miller, four years with Indiana, canned. They ended the season at 12 and 15. They lost six in a row or something. He really didn't have a great run with them. I think they made the tournament once or maybe twice. Whatever the case is, that's not what interests me about the story. What interests me about the story is that there's an athletic director for Indiana. His name is Scott. And part of the announcement that this athletic director made when firing Archie Miller was to make it very clear that while Archie is getting a $10 million buyout, that entire 10 million was raised through private philanthropic funding. So here's how this works in real life. Boosters that are called, supporters of athletic programs at schools around the country. Hello, Scott. Hi, this is John. And I just wanna say that Archie sucks and I need you to fire him. Well, listen, we owe him $10 million. If you can go raise $10 million, then of course we'll fire him. If you can even raise eight, I could probably get the other two. John says, all right, Scott, I'll get back to you. John calls his other friends, the other boosters, because they all have their own phone book. I don't know if you know this, but when you are a big donor to an athletic program, you get a book of all the other big donors so you can all talk to each other on the top of the mountain where you reside. And so you pick up the phone and say, hey, I need 100K. Hey, doesn't Indiana suck? We suck. It's embarrassing. We're not in the NCAA tournament in our own home state this year. We got to get rid of them, but we need 10 large. So they call up the athletic director once they've gone around and raised the money and they say, all right, we've got the money. I want them fired right now. And the athletic director says, all right, your wish is my command. So they get Wesley together with Buttercup, an occasional Humperdinck, the six-fingered man, always Fezzik, and they say, you are now running our program. You are the Dread Pirate Roberts. I don't think it should be the people with the most money get to run the program. I think people who know how to run a program should run a program. And if Archie Miller should be fired, then the person who signed him to a deal that he has a $10 million buyout, that person should be fired by the president of the school. But the AD gets to look okay because he gets to go to the president and say, no budget hit. I know you're embarrassed that we're in the big 14 and we're not in the tournament, but I raised the money, we're good. To which the president could say to the athletic director, I appreciate that you can raise $10 million to fire Archie. What about raising $10 million to save the sports that we have to cancel because we lost revenue? Or what about raising $10 million to maybe endow a chair in philosophy or economics or history? To which the athletic director says, they don't wanna give 10 million to that. 
It's like the argument that people would made when we were building the ballpark with a public-private partnership in Miami, and they would say, David, you don't like police or fire or education. You want to increase the taxes on the great people of Miami. And I would say, no, I don't. But if you're asking me to go to the owner and ask him to put in $160 million into infrastructure in Miami, he's not going to do it. If you want him to put $160 million into the fireman and policeman pension fund, he's not going to do it. If you want him to put $160 million into a public-private partnership where a ballpark will be built and the public funds will be used that cannot be used for anything other than a ballpark or a convention center because they're tourist tax dollars, I'm in. So what you're saying to me is the $10 million that these boosters raised to pay for Archie Miller couldn't be used for an endowment or couldn't be used to help a budget crunch or financial aid because they wouldn't give the money for that, not because it's legislatively not allowed. That's the big difference in financing of Stadia. The money we're using is there because of legislation. If you don't like it, vote out the people at the state level. But in sports and in college athletics, the dollars are totally fungible. What's not fungible are the donors. Because as you know, to many donors, how the Indiana Hoosiers basketball team does is far more important than what the ranking is of the history or philosophy department. But instead of just owning that, the AD said, as the director of athletics, I wanted to wait until the conclusion of the season before evaluating the leadership of our men's basketball program. What a crock of crap. He waited to the end of the season when they didn't make the NCAA tournament and they had lost six in a row. Then he started making the calls to privately raise the $10 million. Horse hockey. Can't do that overnight. You're calling three weeks in advance before you've lost six in a row and said, hey, this is Archie's last chance, John. If we don't make it, I want to can him. Are you in or are you out? He continued, though, the AD. He said, in the days following the completion of our season in the Big Ten men's basketball tournament, I've spent a great deal of time evaluating our recruiting, student-athlete development, leadership development, and playing philosophy and strategy. That review combined with the on-court results ultimately led me to conclude that a change in leadership of our program is warranted at this time. I shared my assessment with the president, and he accepted my recommendation. Hey, Coca. How much time was there between the Big Ten tournament and the firing of Archie Miller? About two weeks, I'd say, because that's, that's a good amount of time, right? Waiting for the conclusion of the season before evaluating. And in the days following the completion, he spent a great deal of time. Why not just say this? When I heard from my boosters that they were going to stop giving money unless we made a coaching change because of the lack of results, we decided to definitely make the coaching change. When I informed our president we were making the coaching change, the president said, do what you want, but go find me 10 mil. I found the 10 mil pretty quickly because it turns out that everybody wanted Archie gone who had money. So they gave the money. He's gone. And now we're going to do a major search for a new coach. Can you imagine? Their season ended on March 11th. Today's March 16th. That's a lot of reflection, wasn't it, by the AD in Indiana? It's laughable to me. I guess if people came out and just said what was on their mind, then they'd be me. When we come back, we're going to revel 
in the Knicks almost beating the Nets. We are going to get to an interesting topic that is a wait to see about a new player for the Red Sox. But I want to tell you that immediately after the break, we're going to review a four-part documentary on Woody Allen. We'll be right back. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Through the first round of the NBA playoffs, it's still all about the Celtics and the Nuggets. Will it be a likely matchup between the two powerhouses for the NBA championship? You can bet on the Celtics to beat the Nuggets at plus 400, or the Nuggets to beat the Celtics at plus 425, right now. And if you're new to DraftKings, you gotta check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name's David. Coke and I come to you every day, five days a week, 45 minutes. Thank you for your time. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, telling your friends. You got to do that. It's working somehow. We love what we do, and we're going to keep doing it. Get to watch a movie every day or a TV show. The last four Sundays, I've watched Alan V. Farrow, a four-part documentary on HBO Max. I lived through this documentary. So the background is Woody Allen is a world-famous director, a world-famous New Yorker, a world-famous stereotypical Jewish man who was going out with Mia Farrow and they adopted a bunch of kids. She had a bunch of kids. They had a baseball team, basically nine kids. Some were adopted by Woody. Some were with Mia, not needing to be adopted. Some weren't adopted, whatever. Back in the 90s, Woody Allen was making movies. He makes movies every year. I think he's made about 49 movies in his career. He's about 85 years old. And there was a big, big problem for him in the early 90s, right when the Knicks were really good and he was a big Knicks fan, would go to every game. And he actually lived at 930 Fifth Avenue, 74th and 5th, the same building where my grandpa lived. So I got to see Woody Allen in the lobby all the time, scurrying in and out with his fishing hat. Saw him at Nick Games, restaurants. All's good because he was one of the greatest, funniest, most brilliant directors of all time. All of a sudden, there were questions of whether or not he abused his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow. And things were not made better when he left Mia for one of Mia's daughters, adopted daughters, not one of Woody Allen's 
adopted daughters, but one of Mia's adopted daughters. Her name is Suni Previn because Mia was married to Andre Previn, a composer. But Suni is about, I don't know, 35 or 40 years younger than Woody. And the scandal is that it, he helped raise Suni. Meanwhile, they've now been married for 30 years and have two kids of their own. Woody Allen engaged in a public relations bonanza. What's the word I'm looking for? When you out PR someone, a, uh, or a hailstorm of PR, but that's not the right word. I'm looking for when you do something so well and it's so powerful that you simply win the narrative. Mia Farrow was saying that Woody Allen is abusing my daughter and marrying a different one. Woody Allen is saying Mia Farrow's crazy, making this up, and started something called spousal or parental annihilation, I think is the word. When you tell your kids something about one of their parents, that one of the parents did something to them, make them believe it. It is a four-hour documentary that is incredibly one-sided, but incredibly tragic, incredibly sad. And Woody Allen, postscript, his last movie was shelved for a few years with Timothy Chalamet. I think I may have reviewed it called A Rainy Day in New York. No one will work for Woody Allen anymore. His muses like Diane Keaton and Mia Farrow and Diane Wiest, even Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson came out and said how sorry she is. Penelope Cruz won an Oscar for Vicky Christie Barcelona. Diane Wiest won an Oscar for, I want to say, Hannah and Her Sisters. Could have been Bullets Over Broadway as well. I'm blanking right now. But he has directed, he stars in every one of his movies. And he basically was able to overpower Mia Farrow. And it's tough for New Yorkers to read this because he was our cultural icon, our hero. And then you see all the stuff that he is alleged to have done. The Connecticut police never prosecuted him, but they found probable cause to. There was so many politics involved, so much money involved. And it just helped basically prove that money and power tend to overshadow illicit activity. But there's been a comeuppance with the Me Too movement where Dylan Farrow, now as a married woman with a child of her own, has been able to tell her story and be heard. And it's hard to watch that documentary as one-sided as it is. It's hard to watch it and not think, man, I never realized how creepy he was. I just thought he was strange, but not creepy. Man, I never realized that he would do that, but he did. And it's very polarizing because there's some people who refuse to believe that Woody Allen, this icon, this hero, this nudnik could do the things that he is accused of doing. It's an interesting psychological issue, actually. And it happens in sports a lot where your sports hero does something off the field and you love him so much on the field that you tend to judge him less off the field when if it were a friend of your family or a, a parent of a friend of your child, there would be immediate judging and long lasting judging. But when it's an actor or someone in public who you believe you know, but you don't, one of the great lines from the documentary is from a psychologist who says, it's strange the actions that people take and the feelings people have toward people they've never even met. I've met Woody Allen. 
He's not a friend. He's not an acquaintance. I've met him the way a fan would meet a celebrity, where you shake his hand and you see him. And you say, oh my God, I bet he remembers that. I bet he'd remember me if he saw me. Hey, remember me from the halls of 935th Avenue? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Negative. That's why when you meet someone, you actually say, hey, good to see you again. Don't you remember me? Of course, you never say that to someone, by the way. Don't ever say, hi, it's David. Don't you remember when we met? It just puts someone in a bad position. Either they're going to lie to you or they have to admit the fact they don't remember. Makes them feel badly for not remembering. So just say, hey, good to see you again. Hey, it was good to spend that minute with you 40 years ago, knowing that you spend 2,000 minutes like that each day. So what do I do about Alan V. Farrow is the question. And it's a question I've been asking myself because I want you to watch it, but I don't ask you to give up four hours of your day easily because I know I ask you for 45 minutes and when there's a movie to review that I really want you to see, I'm gonna say it. If you are a fan of Woody Allen, I think you need to watch it. If you are not a fan of Woody Allen, I think you need to watch it. And if you want to just read, there've been some great articles by his son, um, oh God. Ro, I want to say Ronan, but that's the movie. Rowan Farrow, but I think that's wrong too. Rowan, could it be just Rowan Coca? Rowan, R-O, Ronin, Ronan, R-O-N-A-N. So he's written some great articles. If you'd rather read, if your tummy hurts, you're going to be in the bathroom and you want to read instead of watching. But just familiarize yourself with the story and then let me know where your head is at that. Meanwhile, in other news, he's still a Nick fan. And so am I. I went many years not loving the Knicks because I was living in Florida, running the Marlins, pretending I had to like the heat. The Knicks stunk after 1999. They're sort of more fun to watch right now. I like watching that Randall guy. He's pretty emo emotional. You see what happened at the end of last night's Nets game? We told you the nothing personal pick of the day was the Knicks plus seven and a half over the Nets, and we've been hot. We were 34 and 20 going into the night. The Nets had a big lead. I told Coco all streaks come to an end. Coco said, just you wait. I've got two words for you, back door. Now, normally that's not two words I'm too interested in hearing, but when it comes to gambling and winning a pick of the day, you had me at back. The Knicks ended up losing by five. They actually could have won the game. Randall thought they should have. Some strange calls were made at the end, both to benefit the Knicks and to benefit the Nets. Doesn't matter. We're now 35 and 20. That is a positive. So, Because we successfully won yesterday, we're going to try the NBA again today. Because we successfully did a dog, I like another dog today. Why are the Celtics getting five at home from the Jazz? Because the Jazz have the best record in the NBA, true. But the Jazz, if you look at their last 10 games, you got to count the all-star break in there. They're just not playing like the number one seed anymore. The Celtics, after the Brad Stevens scare, are playing much better. I just think the line's too long, Coca. We're going to take the Celtics plus five versus the Jazz tonight. Let's try to take our record of 35 and 20 and get to double high, get to 36 and 20. Eventually, we're going to lose a pick, guys. But right now, we are H-O triple T. The thing about gambling is that it's really good when you're winning and you feel like you'll never lose again. 
And then when you lose, you feel like you'll never win again. It's the exact feeling I had every day for 18 years after winning a baseball game. And remember, the best year you lose 70 games. The worst year you lose 100 games. So anywhere between, let's say you win 100 games. So it's between 62 and 100. That's winning 100 or losing 100. Between 62 and 100 nights a year for 18 years, I went to bed miserable. Now, I wasn't emotional because you know me and you know that after 30 minutes, I've lost my emotion and then we'll make player moves or trades or whatever we have to do, but never within 30 minutes. However, the reality is that when you close your eyes and you've won a game, you feel like you're never going to lose again. And when you close your eyes and you've lost a game, you're worried that you're never going to win again. And it's the same when you're gambling and you're picking games, sports betting I'm talking about. So I feel like we're never going to lose again, but I'm all worried that when we do, we'll never win again. So it is going to be very interesting to see what happens. But I got to keep talking about gambling because there's something going on in the world that is very, very important to me. And it is this. We spent a lot of years in baseball arguing with Commissioner Selig about revenue from gambling. We wanted it. We wanted casinos, Indian casinos to sponsor us, Native American casinos. We wanted to be able to do deals with Vegas casinos. We wanted owners to be allowed to buy teams who had memberships and ownership of Vegas casinos because they had money. The reason casinos are always so nice, by the way, is they're built with your money, $10 at a time, but I digress. And the league was very reticent to partner, to allow, they felt as though there could be an issue. We don't want to associate ourselves with gamblers. Pete Rose, don't want to do it. Shoeless Joe Jackson. If you have not seen Eight Men Out, please watch that movie about the Chicago Black Sox and the scandal of what happens when gamblers get to players. But in the last couple of years, baseball as well as the other sports have started to embrace gambling, but they did it one toe at a time. And right now they've got their damn snorkels on. And the reason they've got the snorkels on is they're taking money anywhere they can get it. They're letting casino sponsor teams, no problem. They're letting sports books open in ballparks, no problem. They're letting broadcast partners discuss gambling during the show, no problem. When I was a kid watching Monday Night Football with Al Michaels, one of my favorite things to hear him say, and this game is now over. And I would say to a friend the first time when I didn't know what it meant, how can the game be over? There's four minutes left in the game. What's he talking about? And then I was taught that Al Michaels was making veiled gambling references because even back then he knew that in a blowout game, the only people watching are those watching for the spread or for the over or the under, et cetera, or for individual prop bets or for daily fantasy. All the things that Al Michaels couldn't dream about existing all exist right now. So all this is good, right? There's no problem, right? It's a perfect story, right? Mm. Guess what happened? I read this a couple of days ago and it is of great concern. There's a 24 year old guy and I'm going to name him. His name is Benjamin Tucker Pats. They call him Parlay Pats. He lives in Napa. He pled guilty on Wednesday in Tampa to transmitting threats, interstate or foreign commerce. He's going to prison. He made violent threats several years ago against athletes and their family members. He threatened to enter their homes. He threatened to behead them or their family. Some of the threats had derogatory terms or racial slurs, investigators said, but let's just talk about 
the physical threat that he made to players on the Tampa Rays, as an example. Why? What's what's the story here? He's going to prison. Hmm. Do you think he bet on the Rays and the Rays didn't win a game? Or he bet on the Rays to lose and they won a game when they shouldn't have won? The biggest issue that the commissioner always had was the nightmare scenario of the integrity of the game being questioned. And here we are in 2021 with the NFL saying to a team, you can play without a quarterback. I don't care because of COVID. You got to play. You got the players. Hey, Marlins, you got to go to the penal league and the beer league and the independent league to get players. Your problem, we're playing because of COVID. COVID is not gambling. The integrity of the game that all these commissioners talk about has been thrown out the window long ago in the name of the almighty dollar. I don't blame them. As a president of a team, for as long as I was a president, I said the same thing. We want revenue. We want to lose less or increase our payroll and break even, but we want whatever revenue we can find. And there is revenue in gambling. No one's going to get to our players because we talk to the players every day and say, hey, play the game. I didn't like it when players would lie to me and I'd say, hey, who's favorite tonight? Do you know? And they'd say, no, the players all know. Every football player, every basketball player, every baseball player, they know the line of their game. You can't avoid it. Do you know the players sit in the kitchen and they look at MLB.com or MLB Network or CBS Sports HQ or ESPN or whatever they're watching and the ticker, it's all lines. It's all gambling. You think they don't know about fantasy and draft, fant- draft kings and fantasy, whatever it is, daily fantasy? These baseball players know all about it. I've had more than one player after an 0 for 4 say, ooh, that was a bad day. Yeah, that was a bad day. It should come with, but we won the game. Or man, it was a bad day. I went, I got four knocks, but we lost. No. You don't hear that kind of stuff anymore. Bad days and good days are based on individual performance, not team performance, which really pisses me off, actually, having run a team for so long. But are we at the point now where we have to do something to protect our players? Are we at a point where gambling, we are embracing it so much. We're so interested in dollars that we are stepping over thousands and thousands of people in order to grab that extra penny. And why did I mix the metaphor there? I did it on purpose. Because I wanna believe and I know for a fact that there are still thousands and thousands of fans who don't gamble on sports. Thousands and thousands of fans who still watch it for the love of the game. The problem is that number has been going down and sports leagues now are interested in making sure they stay young and young people have the attention span of gnats I do, same thing. And the best way to keep people engaged for longest, which is the best way to double your broadcast deal, which is what the NFL wants to do and what they're claiming they're gonna do and what MLB wants to do and what they're claiming they're gonna do is to keep people engaged at a younger age. And that requires gambling. That relationship exists and there's nothing we can do about it. Therefore, we need to attack the problem from a different space. What we need to do is have an actual gambling department within the commissioner's office of the NFL, NBA, and MLB. 
a department, not the Department of Investigations, a department who is solely focused on paying attention and monitoring gambling activity on games, gambling activity on players, gambling activity on teams, future bets, anytime there is something that is one or two standard deviations away from the norm has to be looked at immediately. We need protection for our players. We cannot have players going out onto the field worrying that they are in jeopardy or their families in jeopardy because of a result that can happen in a game of chance. And make no mistake, when done right, sports are a game of chance. It's no different than a roulette wheel spin or a hand of blackjack or a roll of the dice and craps. Once in a while you hit the point, once in a while you seven out, once in a while you bust, once in a while you pull on a 16 and get a five, once in a while you hit the number you want, once in a while it goes to the zero double zero green. That is what games are. Once in a while there's a three at the end of a game and the underdog covers, they're called bad beats, there's a whole name for it. Once in a while the Knicks can cover a seven and a half point spread on a great run at the end of a game. Can you imagine if going through a player's mind at the end of a game, if a player is either a gambler himself, or if the player recognizes the amount of money being gambled on him or the team and gets contacted because how easy it is to contact your players now. We used to be able to control our players. We can't do that anymore. The players have their own social media, their own way of being contacted. This guy, Mats Putts, what's his name? I lost a coca. It's not in my head. Is it in the document somewhere? Pats, this guy, Pats, was contacting players on Instagram or Facebook or DM. We don't monitor our players' social media privately. We do the public side of it. We don't ask them for their passwords. We don't see into their DMs. There's going to have to be some rules changed. There's going to have to be access granted to leagues. There's going to have to be some privacy that is going to be sacrificed in order to protect these players. I'm hoping that sending this gambler to prison, I'm hoping that will serve as a deterrent, but I have absolutely no feeling that it will. So this is something we're going to be monitoring forever now. Okay, we have a uh, wait to see that we're going to do today, and it has to do with the So You Want to Talk to Samson. So Coca, let's play the music so I can ask the question, answer it, and give the wait to see. Maybe he did. Maybe he's doing it right now. Well, I can't hear it. So you want to talk to Samson's when I ask a question? I answer a question that is in my DMs at David P. Samson. Can you discuss the difficulty that a Japanese player faces when coming to Major League Baseball? That's a great question. Here's why you asked it, actually. You asked it because the Red Sox signed this offseason. I assume you're from Boston, though I don't know. The Red Sox did a small signing this offseason, a Japanese player named Hirokazu Sawamura. Two-year deal, $3 million, not a big deal. One and a half a year, there's some incentives, et cetera. A relatively small deal for a bullpen arm. But there was an article that came out because his first few appearances in spring training have been mediocre at best. And he's walked a bunch of guys. And that's a concern because this is supposed to be a player with great command. As a matter of fact, this player in Japan only averaged 2.7 walks per nine innings, and he walked like five guys in two outings or something. 
with with the uh, Red Sox. And so the concern is, is it a waste of money? Is he going to be bad? So let me tell you what happens to Japanese players when they come to the States. It is a totally different game. Do you remember when the Red Sox signed Dice K? That was a huge signing. Going to be the next Cy Young. Total failure. Hideki Arabo to the Yankees. Didn't work out. Ichiro to the Mariners. Mm, that definitely worked out. Hideki Mitsui to the Yankees. That one worked out. But the ones that work out are much smaller than the ones that haven't. The Japanese baseball is different. The Japanese competition is different. We always used to say this within our front office. If you like a guy from Japan, that's fine. We're going to scout him. We'll think about signing him. But it's closer to between double A and triple A than it is to major league competition. That doesn't mean that someone like Ichiro should not get the credit he deserves for dominating the Japanese league. Because when you can dominate a league, that still makes you the best in your country. But then he came to the United States and dominated Major League Baseball, which makes him the best in the world, not just in his country. There are amazing acclimation issues that happen when foreign-born players come into your clubhouse. Translators are needed. Different food. Do you know Ichiro, in the years he was with us in Miami, do you know how many times Ichiro ate the clubhouse spread? That's the food that's made available to players before and after games. Ready? Wait for it. It's the number of fingers I'm holding up if you're watching on YouTube's Nothing Personal with David Sampson channel. If you're listening, the number is zero. Donata. He had to worry about his own food, get his own food. Now, he did like California Pizza Kitchen, strangely enough, and all sorts of other types of food, but never ate in the clubhouse. There's acclimation issues when you come to a new country that cause issues. When the Red Sox invest $3 million, they're not interested in acclimation issues. They're not interested in whether or not the player is comfortable. They're not interested in whether or not the strike zone is smaller in Major League Baseball. They're not interested in whether or not the ball is slippery, even though the manager will say these are all important points. They are interested in whether or not he will get players out. Bullpen arms are fungible. When you sign Sawamura and you only guarantee him $3 million, you do not give that player time to adjust. Either he will perform and keep his spot or he will not be on the team. So you asked me a very simple question. What is the difficulty? It is strong. But what is the way to see with the Red Sox? It's the following. Sawamura will not be on the Red Sox active roster on September 1st. I do not believe that he will have the time that he will need to adjust and that the Red Sox will give him the lifeline and the rope that he will need to be successful in Major League Baseball because they are so desperate to show that last year was an anomaly, even though the Red Sox go up and down a lot, that the minute he does not have command in the big league bullpen, once the regular season starts, he will be off the team. The wait to see is Sawamura will not be on the active roster by September 1st. Believe it. And you know that it's about winning games. You know it's about winning dollars. With nothing personal, it's all about business. Sorry, Sawamura, it's not going to work out for you. It's nothing personal.